Hey everybody, Chris Webster here to talk about one of the latest supporters to the Archaeology Podcast Network, The Motley Fool. Now, I've been investing in the stock market through various applications for a few years now, and everybody who's listening to this can benefit from that sort of investment for the long-term financial planning. And also, I know the hosts of these podcasts can benefit because as archaeologists, like none of us get retirement, <laughs> we all have to kind of fend for ourselves. So investing in the stock market is a good idea, but not everybody can do it. And look, we get it. The market is complicated and confusing, and to many of us, it simply doesn't make sense. In fact, where do you even start? Take all of the guesswork out of it with the Motley Fool Stock Advisor. The Motley Fool has been around for over 25 years and has been spot on in recommending some of the world's most important companies before they hit the big time. I'm talking about Amazon, Tesla, Netflix, Starbucks, all before they exploded in value. With their easy to use and super informative service, Stock Advisor, you could join the ranks before they potentially find the next big thing. After all, their average stock recommendation is up over 400% as of April 10th, 2023. And no need to be intimidated by financial jargon or market complexities. As the name suggests, these guys don't take themselves too seriously. Now, finances, that's a different story. Their friendly and relaxed approach has helped over 700,000 people move closer to financial independence, all while beating the market and having fun. New members can access Stock Advisor for only $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the full list price. Don't sit on the sidelines and think about what could have happened. Visit fool.com slash APN to start your investing journey today. That's $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. So again, check the link in the show notes of this episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Podcast, episode 45. I'm Chris Webster. April is in a field school. On today's show, I'm going to talk about some archaeology in the news and tell you about some new shows coming to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Let's dig a little deeper. Hey, welcome to the show, everyone. As I mentioned, April is out for about six weeks. We did record a, an episode or two ahead of time, but uh, I'm putting this one out for all our Faithful on-time listeners, the ones that wait for us on Saturday morning, uh, apologies that this didn't come out on time. It's just been a, a wacky couple of weeks, and uh, I didn't get a chance to record this. So uh, I'm recording it now, which is, for me, Saturday afternoon, and it'll be out uh, not on time, but at least on the same weekend. So, you know, when you're operating a one-man show for no money, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty much what you can expect. So <laughs> right now... Uh, and check the show notes for what I'm going to talk about. But right now, I'm just going to mention a few items in the news and, and bring some stuff up because that's one of the hallmarks of what we wanted to do with this show is talk about current events and sort of unpack it for the public and uh, and see where it goes. Because a lot of times, news articles are written by uh, journalists. Uh, well, I should say all the time, news articles are written by journalists. And they don't often get the story right because they're following you know maybe a press release or they might have actually had the original article that this was based on or, or um, you know, journal article or something like that. And they have to write headlines and write articles that sort of sensationalize things. So I want to get behind this, assuming there is any, and, uh, and then get into it. So this first article, and again, these are all in the show notes. So if you want to read the article, go check it out. If you're listening to this in like four years or even two years, uh, I'm sorry, but the links are probably broken. But that being said, we're going to talk about it anyway. So uh, this first one actually hits close to home for April uh, because she works with the University of Denver, and it says, DU students preserving local history through archaeology. 
And a new residence hall is going up in the heart of the campus, and a group of archaeology students are getting their hand at uh, getting to try their hand at unearthing history, according to the article. Um, so one of the people April's working with is Dr. Bonnie Clark. She heads up the field school at the Amache Japanese internment camp that's in southeastern Colorado. I actually got a chance to visit there a couple of years ago, and uh, that's where they're at now. So Bonnie Clark is an archaeologist, and she's obviously one of the professors there at the University of Denver. And they were digging up, they were getting ready to create a new building there. And she said, hey, we need to do archaeology. Let's go out and have some students do this and get a chance to um, actually see some work here. Now, as somebody who took archaeology classes and got an anthropology undergraduate degree, having like real world experience right in your backyard is invaluable. Um, if you're not an archaeologist, which if you're listening to the show, you're probably just interested in archaeology. There's probably not a lot of professional archaeologists listening to this. Those are for our other podcasts. However, um, if you are, then fantastic. I'd love to hear your comments in the uh, show notes or Facebook or wherever you heard this. But one of the things that you know, we really need to get is field experience because there's only so much theory you can learn before you really have to put that into practice and, and figure out what it means. So, um, and as Don, Dr. Bonnie Clark was uh, quoted as saying in the article, you can't get more hands-on than this kind of learning. <laughs> and she's, uh, she's totally right. She says you cannot fake an archaeology site. Well, you can, but they can kind of see through it. So, you know, I, I've definitely had discussions with people about how to fake an archaeology site for the purposes of teaching. And, just some of those processes, some of the soil processes that happen and, and the, the rodent activity and things like that, sometimes it just takes decades for that stuff to really happen and to fake that and get it right um, would be really difficult. So anyway, um, they found some of the things they found were um, tile from a cellar, a seed from a 1900s garden. Um, they found square nails from the late 1880s. Square nails are basically, you know, cut from like a sheet of iron, um, and then they have a little head pounded onto them. But they're they're literally square nails. Um, when they were made, when wire nails, which is what the round ones are used to, were made a bit later, and they were actually cut from a piece of wire and then had a point put on them and things like that. So different type of technique. It, it allowed them to mass produce the nails, whereas basically some kind of blacksmith had to make the square nails, and uh, or somebody specialized in making square nails had to make those. And they are, they all came out in different sizes. They were a little uneven, and they were you know difficult to manage. So obviously when the round nails came around it was a lot easier to work with. So that's pretty cool. Um, so the class had uh, help interpreting their finds from Audrey Dorset, a 92-year-old that grew up in a home that once stood where they were digging. That's an awesome resource to have, somebody that, uh, that actually lived on the site. Although she would have been a child, and I'm not sure how, you know, I mean, I have trouble remembering my childhood, and it was only, you know, 40 years ago. <laughs> but um, good on her if she could remember a lot of what was happening back then. So uh, she said she could barely recognize her childhood neighborhood, uh, Ms. Dorset did, and I, I don't doubt that one bit. So um, once the residence hall is finished, according to the article, um, people will call that spot home again. Nice little uh, plug for the article there. Uh, and Dr. Clark hopes to set up an exhibit in the new building to show off what her students found. So it's always kind of nice to know. Um, I, I believe in progress. I believe that you know you don't have to keep everything, but I do think that it's nice to learn when you're sitting in a building. I mean, I'm sitting in a relatively historic building right now. It's nice to know the history of that building and where it came from and maybe what was there before that so you can have an understanding of the land that you're that you're actually sitting on. So 
Anyway, if you want to check that article out, it is in the show notes, as I mentioned. And now we're going to talk about one more article. Again, the link is in the show notes. And they'll be in the show notes in the order that I'm talking about them, so they're easy to find. This one is from Archaeology Magazine, and it's entitled Possible Cancer Rates in Ancient Egypt Reviewed. So I'm just going to paraphrase here um, because they're actually discussing a report from Live Science. But essentially, uh, researchers looked at um, Egyptian population of more than 1,000 people uh, buried in the, what they call the Dekle, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, Dekle, um, D-A-K-H-L-E-H, oasis. So Dekle, oasis, between... Uh, 1,500 and 3,000 years ago, and they detected just six cases of cancer through lesions and bone damage on the skeletons, um, which included at least one toddler who had leukemia and a man in his 50s whose uh, rectal cancer tumor was preserved in his mummified remains. That has got to suck. There was also a woman who had a hole in her hip bone measuring about 2.5 inches. Um, It's thought to have suffered from a tumor, but the scientists weren't able to determine where the disease originated in her body. Three people, two women and one man, died in their 20s and 30s and were thought to have had succumbed to cancer. Now, the tricky thing about this whole thing here is that not every cancer, because cancer comes in many forms, but not every cancer will make an impression on your bones. So you need some sort of, if you're going to look at bones and that's the only thing you have, the bones have to be altered by some sort of disease, right? Some sort of pathology, they call it, to the bone, Um, which means the bone has been altered from its what is presumed to be its normal state, you know? So if you see anything different, that's either something genetic, it's just something different happened to the bone, or it was caused by disease, right? So uh, there's lots of things that will do that. You can have um, malnutrition, um, lots of different things that will change the way the muscles attach to the bone or tendons or ligaments, or maybe the shape of the bone, the, the density of the bone, things like that. So it's interesting trying to detect cancer because, again, they're not saying that most of those people didn't have cancer. What they're saying is if anybody else did have cancer, it wasn't detectable in, in uh, bone pathology. So that's a good thing to note because archaeology can tell you a lot of things when you start really digging into the evidence. But there are some things it just can't tell you because the evidence that is left behind does not exhibit the properties that would tell us about the thing. Like, for example, I work in the deserts, um, uh, the deserts of Nevada mostly, And we find a lot of what we call projectile points, but what you might know as arrowheads. And it's really difficult. We have some cave sites here that have have preserved some plant and wood material. But aside from that, it's really difficult to tell what these things were were what we call hafted to. That's what the little tangs on the bottom of these um, arrowheads are called or for is basically for, you know, you take some uh, some sort of rope that they would make, whether it's like ligaments or twine or, you know, plant based or something like that. and you would attach the arrowhead to a wooden shaft using that sort of material. We know that because we have found examples of that, but typically in the desert, uh, in the open air, that kind of stuff, you know, a thousand years later is long gone because it just disintegrates to the earth. The rock is still there, that is the arrowhead, but everything else is just gone. So we can only infer what we know from things that we found um, that, hey, this probably attaches something like this or it probably attaches something like this. But the reality is it, it's an educated guess and we really just don't know. Because honestly, somebody who's hungry for food, if they just found uh, something laying on the ground that maybe they weren't used to, a different shape because projectile point or arrowhead shapes change through time, 
um, they could have picked that up and they could have hafted it to something that they're used to doing. They just maybe not have, wouldn't have known how the original makers of that hafted to it. So understanding the actual history of it is is really kind of a guessing game because there are some things that are not preserved in the archaeological records. So interesting story about the bones. Um, I like hearing about that. Uh, but again, not a lot we can really tell. Um, we can tell a lot from bone pathology, but cancer is one of those things that just is something that we could only tell very little bit about. So, all right, here's another uh, article from Archaeology Magazine. And again, they are basically reading Science Magazine and reporting it in Archaeology Magazine. So I appreciate it when they do that. So I'm going to give them the credit just for me finding it because apparently they had better search engine optimization because that's how I found it. But this one is called The Use of Cacao Beans Studied Through Maya Artwork. And this is a pretty cool study. Um, shows that uh, an analysis of Classa Maya artwork from the southern lowlands suggested chocolate in the form of fermented and dried cacao beans, tasty, uh, may have been used as currency beginning around the 8th century AD. I mean, I've always said I will work for coffee. Uh, pretty sure I'd work for chocolate too. I don't know. A lot of people probably would. So the artwork here dating from about 8250 to 900 included murals, ceramic paintings, carvings, depicted market exchanges, and tribute payments to Maya kings. They are collecting way more cacao than the palace actually consumes. Well, that's that's good to know. So the archaeologists think the surplus cacao is used to pay palace workers or to purchase additional goods in the markets. So basically, what you're seeing here is in the artwork, they're showing the palace receiving all this cacao. Uh, they're showing it in the artwork. And then they're saying, well, how much do they really need, though, to actually consume on a daily basis? So there are a lot of assumptions being made here. First, we're assuming that we knew how much they consumed on a daily basis. I mean, maybe these were chocoholics. Maybe they just uh, used it for ritual purposes. I mean, I know we have some evidence of that, and I'm not a Maya scholar, so I can't actually say that. But I'm just saying that there is some assumption being made based on previous research that they ate X amount of chocolate or cacao and its derivatives, and that's what we're basing this this X figure on for how much they took in. Now, the artwork is another anomaly because that's showing us that they took in actually this much from these various sources and they're saying yeah but they took this in as like a tribute or a tax collection but you know they couldn't have actually consumed all this so maybe they're spending it you know maybe they're handing it out and i think that's a legitimate uh hypothesis i think that actually could have happened if this is such a valuable resource well then uh people at the palace that are working there would probably see it as a you know, as a good thing to just be handed some of this, especially if you could use it out on the regular market as currency or for trade. So it's legit. I could see it. Um, I think there's other possible explanations. Like, for example, the art could have been flamboyantly um, over-exaggerated because artists do that. You ever heard of an artist over-exaggerating something? I don't know. Maybe. So, but you, you did stand a chance of being, you know, ritually sacrificed and having your blood run down the channels of the temple if you... Uh, uh, if you didn't do something right. So I don't know, maybe maybe embellishment in their artwork was, wasn't a thing, but I know that kings and royalty and people in power, they like to show themselves as bigger than life, as, uh, as close to a god as possible. And I imagine they would have been okay with the palace artist saying, hey, check out all this stuff I see you bringing in. Maybe that's an encouragement to the people to say, hey, look what you should be doing. You should be bringing us you know, 
buckets full of this stuff, but you're not. So here's a drawing to help you along. <laughs> Who knows? You know, maybe that's what they wanted and they weren't getting it. I don't know what the deal is, but you have to read these kinds of articles and read these research and understand that assumptions are being made. Um, that's not a bad thing. We need to make assumptions, but then we test those assumptions and those hypotheses through further research. So if we find more examples of this from other kingdoms or something like that, or we find a cache of these things and we're like, what the hell is this huge store pot of, you know, storage area of cacao? Uh, you know, what's going on there? Then that might lend more evidence to it. So um, again, read these with a grain of salt and some critical thinking skills and uh, a little bit of skepticism. So, all right, on to the next article. This one is from the New York Post. And it's it's basically titled, Here's What Archaeologists Uncovered After Digging Up Woodstock. So an archaeology firm has been contracted. They are um, actually Binghamton University. Um, they are digging up the site of Woodstock. And again, I will paraphrase here. A, a lot of people have gone to Woodstock over the 49-year history, 49 years as of 2018, um, that the fest, since the festival took place. A lot of people go there. You know, it's farmland. They try to look and relive and figure out what's going on. Um, you know, uh, maybe they were there, maybe they want to just experience it because, um, you know, Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Janis Joplin, many other rock legends, they all performed on the main stage there. And people want to just go be in that space because they get something, they get something out of it. Um, so one of the things that has been uncertain is exactly where that stage was, um, probably because everyone was high while they were there, so they don't actually remember. But what they're trying to find is really where the stage is. And my guess is something will probably put up to be able to find that. Um, some of the other notable bands that were there, of course, were Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR, Joe Cocker, and Sly and the Family Stone, um, who were also there. So lots of cool things. Um, some of the things they have found, they found a guitar pick, you know, um, they're looking for some other stuff, but anyway, um, oh, they were, sorry, they were looking for a guitar pick and a headband <laughs> or something like that, but instead they found beer can tabs and shards of glass. Um, so, but that's, you know, that's, uh, that's kind of cool because it means maybe they, maybe they cleaned up a little bit and, and not a lot of that had a chance to be buried. So anyway, um, this is a pretty neat thing. Um, they did found uh, a piece of a fence, um, that could be used as a reference point, for the stage because there is an aerial photograph that shows the stage, a fence going around it, um, and then some parking areas and the tree line. It seems to me like you should be able to fairly easily to tell where the stage is, um, assuming any of those tree lines and those little roads are there. Um, there's there's definitely scale there, and there's definitely uh, some things that we could do to, to probably get really, really, really close. And I'm thinking ground penetrating radar, if the ground is impacted at all, like maybe impacted or something like that by the weight of the stage or something like that. And that's still in existence. 49 years later, I don't know. It was only up for three or four days. So uh, and actually, I think the festival lasted that long. So the, the stage was probably up for a good week. But it would be interesting if the ground had already bounced completely back after that point and there's no impression in the ground that you could find. So anyway, that's a pretty neat little thing that they're doing there. Um, it goes to show you too that things don't need to be 50 years old to be historic, which is uh, generally our rule here. Uh, when we look for things for eligibility for inclusion on the National Register of Historic Places, we try to say, is it historic? You know, is it, um, is it historic or is it, you know, does it meet one of four criteria? And 
generally when we look at stuff, it has to be 50 years old before we really make that assumption. However, that's not always the case. If it meets one of those criteria and it's a significant thing that happened to the you know history of the nation, then we can include it on the National Register of Historic Places. And Woodstock definitely had an impact on the nation at the time because of what it stood for, who was there, what they were trying to accomplish. You know, that had a, a massive impact on, on the entire country uh, at that time. So, you know, it's, it's good that they try to find these things. All right, so World Cup. World Cup is going on. Well, it was going on when I found this article. Uh, I haven't been following it, so I'm not, I think it's still going on now. Um, so the the country is, uh, even the United States, is all crazy for soccer right now. So uh, I've got an article here from National Geographic, the last one we're going to talk about, called Where Did Soccer Start? Archaeology Weighs In. So uh, it's interesting because a lot of people with uh, rudimentary knowledge of um, – a lot of people with a rudimentary knowledge of history might think that uh, soccer kind of started in Mesoamerica with the Mayans um, because they were, you know, they had their Maya ball courts and things like that. But it says that the Chinese were the first to start kicking balls into nets and doing things around in the third century BC uh, and became normally globally known as uh, football, of course, later on. Um, but the predecessor of the modern ball games, as we play them today, can be found in Mesoamerica. So the Chinese were the first ones to kind of kick balls around. And in Mesoamerica is when, you know, what we would kind of start to recognize as soccer or football today, uh, football as the, as the rest of the world knows it, can be found in Mesoamerica. Um, there are some people down there trying to kind of bring it back, too. Um, but they say the vast historical region from... Uh, Mexico to Costa Rica uh, flourished before Columbus discovered them, of course, and maybe even played the sport that involved a heavy ball made from a substance derived from tree resin. That would have been a huge pain in the ass to kick. Uh, they say it's unclear exactly when the game was invented, um, but it's a popular across Mesoamerican cultures like the Teotihuacanos, uh, Aztecs, and the Maya beginning about 3,000 years ago. So that's quite some time. Um, now that's, you know, prior to the 3rd century BC. <laughs> so I'm not sure why they said the Chinese were the first ones to actually kind of do that, but uh, 3,000 years ago is, uh, is definitely prior to that. So um, I guess maybe they're looking at different places of the world where it, where it was invented. Anyway, pretty cool article. Check it out. You can read the entire thing. Um, but there are, uh, yeah, there are some people trying to bring that back. And uh, just as a side note, you know, game is seen as, Games like this, where you pit two sides against each other, are sometimes seen as an analog to war. And it's said that Aztec kings actually did do that. They played it as a substitute for war, um, gaining ruling rights or ruling rights or diffusing diplomatic dramas with a game of ball. If only we could still do that, um, but that would put a lot of high stakes on our games as well. And 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 actually take a different incident and put it on you know twelve twenty four people's heads and say hey. You decide this. That's kind of interesting. Sort of reminds me of a Star Trek episode. Uh, I think it was The Next Generation where they went to this planet and they were like, oh, we've eliminated all war. You know, we don't die anymore. Except they did still have war. They just played it with computers. And, you know, the whole team is standing in some command center for one side. And they're like, oh, you know, alarms start going off. They're like, okay, well, you know, we've been hit and uh, losses were shown at 35%. So you've been randomly selected to die. So you go in this little box and it basically vaporizes you. <laughs> you they're like oh it's totally humane you won't feel a thing it's like oh, no problem i think i'm just gonna go back to my spaceship now so anyway 
uh, that's all I've got for the news today. Uh, again, check the uh, check the show notes for the links to these articles. And I'm going to come back with a really quick description of three new podcasts we've got coming to the Archaeology Podcast Network this summer. Um, one of them should be out within, I think, probably the month of July and two more probably in August. So um, we're looking at release dates for them. So stay tuned for that. And we'll be back in just a second. Hey, podcast fans, I've got to talk to you about drinking water. As an archaeologist, I've been on surveys where we had to drink three to five liters of water every day. That's 1.3 gallons, just to basically not die. Sometimes that water just doesn't hydrate you as quickly as you're using it. That's why we've partnered with Liquid IV. The small packets make it easy to take one with you to work, to work out, or on any adventure. I like the strawberry lemonade and lemon lime ones the best. Just put one stick of Liquid IV into 16 ounces of water and get hydrated two times faster than with just water alone. And now with our partnership, you can get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use the code TAS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration Today using promo code TAS at liquidiv.com. This network is listener supported. We're trying to move away from paid advertising while also creating new shows and supporting the ones we have. The APN has never and will never make a serious profit on our podcast. Every little dime we make goes back into the network and improving show quality. So become a member today at www.archpodnet.com slash members to show your support, get some extras, and be a benefactor for archaeological education. Members get stickers, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, bonus content, early access to episodes, a private Slack team to talk to other members and the hosts, and full access to training on Team Black over at arccert.black. So check out our memberships at www.archpodnet.com slash members today and support archaeological education. That's www.archpodnet.com slash members. Now back to the show. All right, welcome back to episode 45, a solo episode of the Archaeology Show. April is on field school at Amache uh, Japanese internment camp in southeastern Colorado. So I hope she's having fun and answering a lot of new questions down there and working with field school students and training the next generation of archaeologists. That's the exciting part. Okay, so as I promised, I was going to talk about three new shows we have coming up. Um, the first one I'll talk about is called Archaeo Animals, and the hosts of that show are Alex Fitzpatrick and Simona Falenga, and they are both zooarchaeologists, although Simona is is kind of a it sounds like she's kind of a self-taught zooarchaeologist and does a lot of zooarchaeology, but she works in the British version of CRM, cultural resource management. So she does contract archaeology over there and ends up doing a lot of zooarchaeology. Um, Alex is uh, in a PhD. She's a PhD candidate right now um, in zooarchaeology and does a lot of work with that. And zooarchaeology is the study of animals in archaeology. So it's not just the study of animals, but animals at human sites, basically, you know, because humans ate a lot of animals. They had animals as pets. You know, they do different things with animals. And there's a lot we can tell about human behavior and activity by studying the animals. So they're going to go over lots of things like that um, over the course of the show. It's going to be every two weeks, and it's going to be coming out, and it is called Archaeo Animals, A-R-C-H-A-E-O Animals. And again, watch the Archaeology Podcast Network Facebook page or our website at arcpodnet.com for more information uh, throughout the summer. And of course, they'll be available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Radio. All right, the next podcast is called the 
Rock Art Podcast. We're keeping the term generic because we want to be able to talk about lots of different things and have this go for a long time. But the um, the first two hosts of this show are actually Dr. Alan Garfinkel-Gold, who is the current, um, I, I think he calls himself the president. I'm not really sure what his title is, but he basically started and runs the California Rock Art Foundation. And he's a world-renowned expert on rock art. If you want to see a Check out a video, I think it's on Vimeo, called Talking Stone. Um, it's all about Coso rock art, which is in the eastern Mojave of Southern California. And really great, uh, really great rock art up there. And some really interesting stuff, but he's all over that stuff. Very well published in the subject, very knowledgeable. And his, he's going to talk about um, uh, basically how to identify rock art, because that's actually a thing. Not all rock art is just pretty pictures. Some, some of it's hard to see. Uh, how to record rock art, how to interpret rock art which is also very difficult, and different rock art in different places. So um, we'll talk about all those things. I'm actually the co-host on that show, but I'm coming in as more of a questioner because I have a you know a rudimentary understanding of most rock art. I know how to record it and do things like that, but I can ask him some of the more detailed questions that I want to know that hopefully you want to know as well. So check out that podcast, again, arcpodnet.com, and we're hoping that one will be out in August. Finally, we have a very different type of show. It's called Historical Yarns, and it involves history, storytelling, and yarn. So if you like to knit, this is going to be for you. <laughs> Actually, some of you may know this and some of you may not, but my wife uh, started out as an archaeologist, and that's how we met, was on an archaeology project in um, North Dakota and then really Miami, Florida. And... Uh, about seven years ago, she decided to leave archaeology because she liked knitting so much. So she went to work for this big um, knitting store here in Reno that is actually an online retailer that retails all over the world. And she's worked for them for a really long time. And in the meantime, she started her own side business that dyes hand-dyed yarn, and she um, designs her own knitting patterns as well. And she's been pretty doing pretty well at that. So she's been trying to find a way for the last few years since I started the APN to combine archaeology and knitting. So she's bringing on a co-host, Heather Boyd, who's also a designer. And basically what they're going to do is four six-episode seasons every year. And we're, we're thinking the first one here is going to start in early September, if not the end of August. And basically, uh, if you know what a knit-along is, it's, it's when you buy a pattern. And if you buy, I don't know how they're going to do it yet, but they're designing a pattern for each one of these. And they're going to have a focus for the show. So like lace or something like that. Each episode is going to talk about the historical significance and origins of that type of knitting and where it came from in the world and do some research on that. And then they'll talk about the actual pattern and the thing that you're knitting uh, in association with that. So, And each episode is going to come out once a week for six weeks. And each week, um, if you're on Ravelry, which is where they'll release the pattern you'll get the next clue, the next section of the pattern. So you'll follow along with them, listen to the podcast, and knit the whole pattern. And there, we're talking about having some discount codes for people that listen live because obviously somebody could listen to this in a couple of years and do the same thing. Um, and, uh, and also having some package deals where they're going to dye some yarn that's specially dyed yarn um, that's going to go with this pattern. So that the colors that they have chosen to go with this pattern, the type of yarn they've chosen to go with this pattern, and they're going to sell it on their store, which is great. So you're supporting, you know, independent uh, business owners and, and and indie dyers, they call themselves. And uh, so, what you you know, you're going to be able to buy the pattern, buy the yarn, and then follow along with them in the podcast. So it's a very different thing than we've done before. 
Um, so that that's going to take about six weeks. So quarters are about three months long. So they'll have about six weeks off so people can have a time to catch up or, you know, if they started late, they can have time to finish. And also they may release some bonus episodes in the mid-season time. But then three months later, they'll do it all over again. Now this first time around, they're probably going to actually delay a few more than three months and, and skip Christmas and, and, and Thanksgiving because that's kind of an interesting time for knitters apparently. Um, and then they're going to go start up again in, uh, in January. So at least that's the plan. It's subject to change. So anyway, if you're interested in any of these things and you want more information or you've got other ideas for shows or maybe you've got ideas for these podcasts and what they could cover, uh, email me, chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, or you can comment on this episode. Uh, the website is arcpodnet.com forward slash archaeology forward slash 45. And check it out there. If you follow us on Facebook, it's at arcpodnet. You can also comment right there. So thanks. This is a short episode. Uh, We'll be back with uh, another great episode in two weeks, I promise. And in the meantime, check out the articles, check out the show notes, and keep staying interested in archaeology. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to the Archaeology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. You can provide feedback using the contact button on the right side of the website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash archaeology. Or you can email chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Please like and share the show wherever you saw it so more people can have a chance to listen and learn. Send us show suggestions and follow ArcPodNet on Twitter and Instagram. This show was produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network. Opinions are solely those of the hosts and guests of the show. However, the APN stands by their hosts. Special thanks to the band Sea Hero for letting us use their song, I Wish You'd Look. Check out their albums on Bandcamp at seahero.bandcamp.com. Check out our next episode in two weeks, and in the meantime, keep learning. Keep discovering new things and keep listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Have an awesome day. This show is produced and recorded by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.